as we come to the close in the book of Ephesians, I thought it proper to give us a review of where we've been. After his initial greeting in the letter, Paul began praising God for the blessing of his power to establish the church. Those who make up the church were selected by God from eternity to be a part of his family, to be holy, to be set apart for him. They were made a part of the church on the basis of the sacrifice of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. This salvation, the death of Christ as a substitute to pay for the sins of the people whom God has selected for his church was applied to their lives by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sent from God is a seal. He brings those believers into the family of God and serves as a guarantee that they indeed do belong to God and that God will redeem them fully in the end. In other words, we didn't choose God. We didn't choose to be a part of the church. Though we may choose for one reason or another which local church we join as members, we didn't choose to be a part of the body of Christ. That was of God's doing. He made the church. He chose us. He sent his son to die for us. He made sure that when we heard the word of truth, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that his Holy Spirit made it possible for us to hear and believe. He is the one who sealed us with his spirit. Thus, as we gather together, we do not do so to pat ourselves on the back. We do so, again, to praise the glory of his grace. Paul then prays for the church. He prays that they might know and understand the significance of the power that is at work in them. The power at work in the church is the same power God used in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. This is resurrection power. This is Christ exalting power. Power which exalted Jesus above every other power, both those in heaven and those on the earth. Again, in Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is Lord over all. The authority of the church is not found in its pastors, is not found in any form of clergy. It's not ultimately found in the opinions of the world, nor its constituents and its members. The authority of the church rests in the person of Jesus Christ. He is Lord over all. That includes the church. This declaration that Jesus is Lord is, in fact, the reason why the first century Christians were hated. The whole Roman world was under the authority of Caesar. They proclaimed that Caesar is Lord, not so for the Christian. The Christian acknowledged human government and authority. They were to be obedient to human government and authority. That same is true for today. But they would not acknowledge him as Lord, as supreme over all. They wouldn't acknowledge him as Lord, meaning that he is God. That's essentially what the Romans were saying about Caesar. They would only acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. This is, in fact, why those first century believers were called Christians. That name is not a name that Christians gave to themselves. That name is a name that the people around them gave to them because of their allegiance to the Christ, to Jesus. Because they confessed him as Lord alone. Continuing the letter, Paul then paints a picture of how the resurrection power is at work in the church in chapter 2. The individual members of the church are considered dead to God in their sin before coming to faith. Their sin had made them separate 
from God that made a separation between them and God. Their sin, their disobedience to God's commands made them his enemies, deserving only his wrath and his judgment. That's the reality of sin. When you sin, you break God's law. If you break God's law, you deserve the consequence for it. If you speed and you break the law, you deserve the consequence for it, period. God is Lord over all. He's a supreme ruler. He is judge. He has provided the standard to which he holds all of humanity accountable. And because we've broken his law, we deserve the penalty, which is death. Thus again, we are all dead to him. Though that is true for all of humanity, because God is gracious, he graciously makes some alive with Jesus. Just as Jesus rose again from the dead physically, spiritually, God unites us with him and makes us alive with him. Having forgiven our sins on the basis of the death of Jesus, his shed blood is the substitute for the death that we deserve. He rose. So have we who trust in him. We now have peace with God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We also now have peace with one another. All of those who believe in Jesus Christ together, all of those who were selected by God in the beginning and brought together into one family, into the household of God, were built together as if we were a building, a dwelling place of God in the spirit, having peace with God and peace with one another together as a result of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is where true peace is found. It is found first by being made right with God, God sending his own son to die for our sins and us trusting in him. It is found second with, with all of those who have been made right by God, who are now a part of the family of God. Thus, we call each other brother and sister. That's not just a, a Christian-y title that we throw around because we go to church. We are literally a part of the family of God. We have been adopted together by faith in Christ. We have peace with each other. We are unified. True unity does not come by common thought alone. It doesn't come by common ethnicity alone. It doesn't come by common purpose alone. It doesn't even come by means of doctrine or denominational tradition alone. True unity is a work of God as a result of the salvation of God, the spirit of God at work in our hearts poured out upon us due to the work of Jesus, his son, dying for us on the cross. After that, Paul prays again for the church. He prays for the church to know the love of God as they draw near to one another in fellowship, that they would love one another, truly love one another, that love would permeate all that we are and all that we do. We are the workmanship of God, a carefully crafted work of art, a poem put on display for the entire cosmos that God created to see his glorious handiwork in us in the church. He has not only created the church, but he sustains the church for that purpose. For the purpose of bringing him glory through their unity, their love for one another as their members of the same family, his family, united by his spirit under the headship of his son who is Lord over all. And he ends that section with these words in chapter 3. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How can we have confidence that our prayers will be of any effect? How can we have confidence that he's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think? 
because he desires to be glorified in the church. That's why. And if he desires to be glorified in the church, he certainly is going to do whatever he must do in order to build his church, in order to establish his church, in order to grow his church, in order to sustain his church. After Paul's second prayer for the church, he gives a final plea for the church. He pleads with her that she would walk in a manner worthy of the calling that God has placed on her and live for his glory. We are to walk in unity. We're unified through the spirit of God who dwells within us by virtue of our faith in Christ and his work to build us into a dwelling place of God. We have been given gifts to sustain that unity and ought to use those gifts for the glory of God. We are to walk with renewed minds, not in the futility of our minds as the unbelieving world, again, because we have been made new in Christ, but rather we ought to walk in the purity of the truth. We are to walk in that truth, speaking truth with one another as members of one another for the good of one another. We are to walk in love as God's beloved children. Anything less would be unfitting of our new life in him. We are children of God, children of the light. Thus, we ought to seek that which imitates the light of our heavenly father and exposes the darkness of those who are not. As his beloved children, we are to walk in wisdom in all of our relationships, submitting to authority as appropriate in the various relationships we have. Relationships in the home between husbands and wives, between parents and children, as well as relationships in the world between slaves and masters. This is a high calling, beloved. This life, life as children of God, as members of the body of Christ in relationship with one another and with God through Christ is a high calling and involves labor and effort. Because this is so, because God has established the church for his glory, just as he poured out his grace to establish the church, he continues to pour out his grace to sustain the church. Thus, we're exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of our calling by means of his strength. The greater reality is that there are also those spiritual forces of darkness who would love nothing but to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Thus, God provides his strength by means of spiritual resources referred to as the whole armor of God to help the church to stand against the schemes of Satan and his minions. Accompanied by this armor, filling in the gaps, binding it all together is his truth wielded by the spirit of God, guided by our faithful prayers. These prayers, which have been commanded to reflect our communion with God, which are offered constantly in cooperation with the Holy Spirit and uttered corporately as one unified body of believers, are for the reception of strength, the strength of God, in order, again, that we might live for his glory. This has been the story of the letter of Paul to the Ephesians thus far. God the Father has chosen, the Son is redeemed, the Spirit is sealed, from before the world began, God has called a group of people out from the world. He's reversed the effect of the fall, brought us into relationship with himself, brought us into relationship with one another, made those of us who were at one time separate into one new man, one new race of people in the church. Again, he's done all of this so that we might be set apart for his glory in the world so that we might live for him. He calls us to do this and he equips us to do this. He calls us to do this and he commands us to do this in the strength he supplies. All we need to do is humbly request and walk in that strength. I've tried to answer this question throughout our study of Ephesians. What is a Christian? A Christian is not a perfect or better human being, better than all the other human beings who walk the face of the earth. That's not the point. 
The Christian is not holy because he or she goes to church, goes to a physical church building or sings songs at church. A Christian is not a Christian just because their parents believed in God or trusted in God. A Christian is not a Christian just because they say they believe in God. We see this time and time again, those who leave the church, perhaps as young adults after having been raised in the church or people of any age who walk away from the church are really only expressing outwardly the inward reality that they were never truly beginning, believing to begin with. Because the work of God doesn't fail. The grace of God doesn't fail. A Christian is one whom the Father has chosen according to his grace from before the foundation of the world. A Christian is one who, according to the grace of God, the Son bled for, died for, rose again for, to secure forgiveness and new life. A Christian is one for whom Jesus Christ makes peace between them and God. A Christian is one who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, who for the praise of his glorious grace causes them to be born again, gives them faith to believe, seals them to guarantee their redemption, gives them gifts for the purpose of maintaining unity and serving their fellow believers. A Christian is one who hears the command of God and sees it not as a burden but a blessing. A Christian is one who hears the word of God and finds in it a treasure to be guarded and a standard to be followed, not a tool to be wielded according to its own desires. A Christian is one who sees the church, the gathering of God's people, as an opportunity to serve, not merely to be served. They see it as an opportunity to encourage and to be encouraged. A Christian longs for fellowship and enjoys fellowship as much as they would enjoy fellowship of any of their closest family members in the flesh because they see themselves as members of the body of Christ, incomplete without the other members of the body of Christ, knowing that true maturity is only possible, Ephesians 4, in the context of the community of the body of Christ. A Christian is one who knows God in Christ, who believes that Christ is alone the way to God, who sees in the face of Jesus Christ the glory of God, who desires to know him more, who clings to him, to his truth, who sees him as a refuge, a help in times of trouble, who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. A Christian sees prayer as communion, fellowship with God, speaking with God as one with a friend, a father. A Christian sees the word of God as communion, the privilege of hearing from God. They see it as the very word of God. There for their guidance, for their correction, for their comfort and encouragement. Ephesians teaches us that Christians live by faith in Christ, by the grace of Christ, as a part of the community of Christ, for the glory of Christ, knowing that it is only through him that we are believers in God and can bring glory to God because we are here for that purpose. We together in community have the life of God by the grace of God. We together in community need the grace of God to live life for the glory of God. As we conclude the letter to the Ephesians, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 6 verses 19 through 24. And these are some of the thoughts that Paul leaves with us. In particular, he emphasizes our need to continue in the grace of God. Well, let's read these few remaining verses, and then we'll take a look at them in more detail. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. <clears throat> Paul says there, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly 
to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am doing, how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent them to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we come before these final words here in Ephesians, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word that you would instruct our hearts, that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christians are those who daily stand in need of the grace of God, and this text will be reminded of the following truths. And these have been major themes, again, throughout the course of the letter. First, that we need the grace of God to accomplish the purposes of God. We need the grace of God to accomplish the purposes of God. That's in verses 19 and 20. Second, we need the grace of God experienced through the people of God. We need the grace of God experienced through the people of God. That's verses 21 and 22. Third, we need the grace of God to walk in the peace of God. We need the grace of God to walk in the peace of God, verses 23 and 24. Let's look at that first point. We need the grace of God to accomplish the purposes of God. Look again at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, and also for me, and also for me, what? Well, we know that Paul was just talking about our need to be people of prayer. Again, God is not so much concerned with us individually being people of prayer in this text. He desires for the church body as a whole to be concerned with prayer. And that's because, again, prayer in the hands of those who are covered by the whole armor of God is the means by which God supplies his strength to the church. And the church is in need of his strength to accomplish his purposes in the world where there are forces of darkness constantly waging war against us. Again, we exist for the glory of God. We have work to do for the glory of God. And we just read Matthew 28 earlier where our commander-in-chief gave us our marching orders to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We make disciples by proclaiming the truth of the gospel and by teaching those who believe all that Christ has commanded. This is how God builds his church. He uses his people as the means by which others are brought into relationship with him. All of what the church does and is ought to be for this greater purpose, knowing that this purpose will ultimately bring glory to God. We have work to do, labor to perform, and that again for the glory of God. The enemy doesn't sleep. He doesn't stop, nor does his cohort. They will not cease from seeking to steal, kill, and ultimately destroy what God has made for his glory. Therefore, we must not cease to call upon the Lord for prayer in prayer for his strength to stand firm against their schemes and to move forward in obedience to Christ to accomplish his purposes. Paul reminds them of this. We need the strength of God. We need to be praying for the strength of God to be poured out on his people. We need his grace to accomplish his purposes. And Paul says, and also pray for me. 
I have work to do. I have been called in Christ and by Christ to accomplish his work. In fact, Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, one of the most convicting and encouraging statements that the Apostle Paul has ever made in my view. There he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Did you hear that? I do not count, account my life of any value nor is precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, Paul didn't say that during a church retreat. He didn't say that from the comfort of his own home. He didn't say that while sitting in the lap of luxury with a private jet awaiting him, a Benz to take him to his million-dollar mansion. Paul was a traveling apostle, a gospel worker, a church planner, a church exhorter. And he said this to a group of dearly beloved brothers and sisters whom he knew he would never see again. And he knew that he was going to a land, having been told by Holy Spirit, where he would be imprisoned for the sake of Christ. In fact, he wrote the letter of Ephesians while in prison. He says, I do not consider my life of any value nor as precious to myself. You cannot find those words anywhere in the world today in the language of self. The message of the world today is love yourself before anyone and anything else. Again, self-care, self-identification, self-gratification are the virtues of the day. But Paul, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ, said, I do not consider my life of any value nor as precious to myself. I'm only here to finish my course and the ministry that I receive from Jesus. My life only has one thing of value, and that's Jesus Christ and the ministry that he's given me. Catonsville Baptist Church, your Savior, has given to you a ministry. The fact that this church has existed, this building has existed for nearly 100 years means absolutely nothing if we're not accomplishing that ministry. If all this church has ever done has been a place for people to come to sit and soak, a place for people to find refuge from the sins of the world for a few hours on Sunday morning, a place where people get precisely what they think they want out of the service, out of the pastor, out of the other servants on Sunday morning, and give absolutely nothing of value of themselves, then it's all been for nothing. If all this church is is another beautiful, large brick building, then again, it is worthless. If all we continue to do in this beautiful brick building Sunday after Sunday is talk about the ministry that we have and never actually do the ministry, then the past 100 years have amounted to nothing. And however many years this building remains and this ministry remains will be for nothing. Our lives, our resources, this church building are all here for one purpose, for the glory of God. We need to be praying that God would use us, the people who are the Catonsville Baptist Church, to accomplish his purposes in the world, regardless of what it costs, regardless of how long it takes, regardless of the difficulty. We need to labor in prayer for the grace of God to accomplish his purposes. Paul said again in our text that you guys need the grace of God. You need to be praying for God's grace and Paul's strength. And you know what? I need it too. Because I need to accomplish the ministry that Christ left for me. My life is worth nothing if I don't do that. And so pray for me that I might be able to do that. How do you measure the value of your life? How do you measure the value of a church? How can a church accomplish the purposes for which it has been called, the ministry that we've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of his grace. 
if we don't pray for it. Back to the text, Paul, again, Paul says, and also for me, meaning pray also for me. Pray that, look at what he says in the text, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may boldly declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He said, pray for me to have words to say. Pray that I would say them boldly. Pray that I would do it even though I'm in chains. Considering the ministry that Paul had of preaching the gospel and the ministry that we have of making disciples by preaching the gospel, what Paul prays for here is what we ought to be praying for. We need to pray that God would grant us the words to say when we have gospel conversations. We know what words to say because we know we, know we need certain words. We need to be able to say, proclaim the gospel in truth. Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've talked about that before. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 that the prince of the power of the air is the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. We know that they're dead in their trespasses and sins and new life must be granted. And so we need to speak our words carefully. Our human wisdom, our persuasive words, our cleverly crafted evangelism presentations are not enough. We need power. We need strength. We need the grace of God. We need for him to guide our words as we share the truth of the gospel, for it is the gospel that is God's power to save those who believe, Romans 1.16. Not our friendship. Again, not our persuasive words. It's the gospel. It's those truths that we celebrate every Sunday. Those truths that we particularly consider as we approach the Easter holiday, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scripture. To proclaim the gospel as we ought, we must pray for we need his strength. We need his grace to accomplish the disciple-making ministry he's given us. We need to pray for the words to say, we also need to pray for boldness. Again, Paul was an apostle. If anyone would have boldness, you would think it would have been an apostle, right? He was specially selected by Jesus, sent by him, directed by him. I mean, what more do you need to have confidence in your ministry? Jesus appeared to Paul and said, Paul, go do this. Yet Paul was still a man. Thus he asked for prayer for boldness. If he asked for prayer for boldness, how much more should we? We should daily be praying for boldness to accomplish the purposes that Christ left for us. We need to pray that we wouldn't shrink away from their skeptical eyes or skeptical attitudes, their agnostic or atheistic refutations, even their outright hatred and rejection of the truth. We need to pray that God would give us boldness as we proclaim the truth. We need to pray for words to say. We need to pray for boldness. We need to pray that God would help us to be fearless no matter the cost. Remember, again, Paul was in prison when he wrote this. He said, this gospel that he preaches for which I am an ambassador in chains, the gospel cost him his freedom. I wonder what you're willing to pay. We're not yet at the point in our society of facing prison for our faith as some of our brethren in the rest of the world. We ought to remain vigilant and praying for them, of course, those in the world who face outright persecution. But for us, it may be the loss of opportunity being overlooked for a job due to your Christian conviction. It may be the loss of a relationship, a family member or a friend who pulls away from you due to your Christian conviction. 
It may be ostracism from the society, the world around us, wants a Christianity to its liking, not the Christianity of the Bible, not the one commanded by our commander-in-chief. It doesn't want that. It wants something more malleable, something more tolerable. The fact that we do not bend, that we proclaim a gospel that comes right from the pages of Scripture makes us odorous, makes us stink, makes us repulsive. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. For we are an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He says we smell a certain way to, to those who are saved and we smell a certain way to those who are lost. To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. To those who are perishing, we are a fragrance of death. We smell of death. We stink of death. It is repulsive to the unbelieving world as we represent Christ. But to those who know him, we are a fragrance of life. It is joyful. It is beautiful. And then Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? We sometimes hide behind our desire not to offend others as an excuse for not preaching the gospel. The reality is the gospel will be offensive to some. It will make us stink, become repulsive, intolerable, particularly to those who are perishing. What we need is not more lessons in friendship evangelism, but we need more boldness to preach no matter the cost. The question is, are you willing to suffer the cost? If you're Christ, if you belong to him, you must be. Because again, in Matthew 28, our commander-in-chief commanded us. He didn't ask if we would or if we felt like it or if we thought we'd like to or if we could be friends enough with the person before we proclaim. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, make disciples, period. That's all the permission you need. We need the grace of God to accomplish the purposes of God. Second, we need the grace of God experienced through the people of God. Verses 21 and 22. Again, Paul says there, so that you also may know how I am doing, how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. It astounds me how frequently I hear people talk about their faith as, as if it is something that they alone possess and something that they alone can manage. I don't have to go to church, they say. I can go when I feel like it, when I want to, and it's all good. If I go to church, I'll go if I feel that I can get what I need, what I want, if it satisfies me. If there's one thing that we've heard loud and clear through the letter of Ephesians is that the faith, our faith in Christ is lived in community. God has designed the body of Christ in such a way that spiritual maturity is achieved in the context of the community of believers, not apart from it. That is why membership in a local church is so important. We're going to have our church basics class and touch on some of this later. 
being a committed member of the local church, which you communicate by joining the church, being a committed member of the local church is an outward expression of the inward spiritual unity that we have by virtue of our faith in Christ. We're brought into the family of God together as one new man, as a dwelling place of God in the spirit. We're particularly gifted by the Holy Spirit such that we use our gifts in service to one another. The whole body is built up and grows into maturity. Paul says there's no other way to find spiritual maturity. We need one another. God provides his grace to live the Christian life, to thrive as a Christian through our relationships with one another, not apart from it. You guys have all heard the, the bonfire, the campfire analogy of coals burning hot, right? Coals that are closest to each other tend to burn hotter because they feed off of the energy of one another. We are a body and members of one another. We're a family of brothers and sisters. We're a building with Christ being the cornerstone. God has provided the body of Christ as a means of grace. Paul exhibited this throughout the course of his ministry. He went on his missionary journeys with others. He traveled with others. He served with others. Even in the various churches he planted, he frequently traveled to encourage. There were others who helped him in the ministry. He even had others to help him to write some of the letters that he sent to the churches. Paul understood the importance of ministry to others. He says again, so that you may know how and what I'm doing, I'm sending Tychicus. The reality is that Paul was able to send Tychicus to report on how he's doing and what he was doing because Tychicus was with him. Tychicus was with him. He knew how he was doing and he knew what he was doing. Tychicus was a traveling companion at that point in his ministry. Again, Paul had people with him, but these weren't just any old people who were in his confidence. Those who he traveled with, who he walked closely with, were trustworthy and faithful. He introduces Tychicus as the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Paul traveled with and had those in his confidence who were trustworthy and faithful in the Lord. He didn't hang out with folks who he used to know when he grew up, right? He didn't hang out with the rabbis in training he went to school with when he was an unbeliever in Christ. He hung out with, traveled with those who were brothers, beloved brothers, meaning that they were beloved by those who knew him, that he was a brother meant that he was clearly a believer and he was a faithful minister in the Lord. So he was beloved by those who knew him, Tychicus was. He was a believer, he had faith in Christ and he was one who himself sought to serve the Lord with his whole heart and with all of his life. That's the kind of person that Paul traveled with. Who are the kind of people you travel with? Who do you keep closest to you? Again, is it the friends you knew growing up? The folks you went to school with? Do you keep closest to you your family because blood is thicker than water? Or do you seek to frequently gather with, travel with, walk through life with, share your life with those who are believers and beloved in the Lord, those who have decided to follow Jesus with their lives? Again, this is why church membership is so important, why it's a biblical requirement. It's why it's okay, not okay to miss church because we gather together not just for our sake, but for the sake of the brother or sister sitting next to us. We gather together because we are family, because we need each other as we walk through this life. I remember when we first introduced Ephesians, I don't know if you remember, but I touched on an article that Dr. Moeller commented on. And in the particular article that was written, it was talking about how difficult relationships are and how, how much our society in general is moving away from being social. We're becoming less and less social and more and more 
social through media or through screens or through telephones or through computers unless people to people social Dr. Moeller pointed out that the, the reality is that the Christian worldview reminds us that us being social is not incidental. It's actually a part of our makeup, our composition as the body of Christ. We're brought together not just through faith in Christ in relationship with God, but we're brought together in relationship with one another. You can't have one without the other. If you have faith in Jesus, that means that you are in relationship with God and that means that you are in relationship with others who have faith in Jesus. That means that you need to be committed to honoring and glorifying God with your life and you need to be committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're commanded in Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. But he also continues in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day growing, drawing near. Yes, we need to hold fast our confession, but it's not enough to hold fast our confession. We need to hold fast our confession and we need to be committed to encouraging one another. In other words, being a Christian requires making a conscious commitment, a constant effort to show up to the gathering of God's people, not for our sake alone, not if we feel like it, but for the good of one another, to stir up one another to love and good deeds. We hold fast our confession by remembering that he's faithful, but also by encouraging one another and by the encouragement we receive from one another. Getting back to the text, this is a part of the reason why Paul sent Tychicus. Again, verse 22, that you may know how we are. Yes, Tychicus was sent to report, but also that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus was a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a competent and consistent encourager of the brethren. That's why Paul sent him. They wouldn't have sent anyone less. I know we're short on time here. Again, we need the grace of God to accomplish the purposes of God. We need the grace of God experienced through the people of God. Third, we need the grace of God to walk in the peace of God. Verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. We typically refer to these closing words as a benediction. Paul is concluding this letter much in the same way as he began. He began talking about grace and peace and he ends talking about grace and peace peace was a typical hebrew greeting i've mentioned this many times before but the idea of shalom or peace in hebrew has to do with being made whole we talk about making someone whole when they've lost out on something maybe they've lost out on it illegitimately and you know we want to we want to strengthen them we want to encourage them we want to make them whole we want to restore them This benediction that Paul offers here, this word of blessing that he offers is a word of blessing that the brothers, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, would know his peace. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. In Ephesians 2, Paul said that he himself is our peace. Those who know the Lord Jesus ought to be people who walk in peace. And thus Paul prays that they would know his peace. 
He wishes them peace, but he also wishes them love. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. And again, as we've been working our way through Ephesians, we know that love is significant to what it means to be a part of the church. Because again, we've been brought together, people from tribe, every tribe and tongue and nation, people from all different kinds of backgrounds called together into this church. And so love ought to permeate all that we do. We ought to have a love for God. We ought to have a love for one another and it ought to be a sacrificial love just as God in Christ sacrificed for us. And he ends with grace. Again, this is the grace that we've been talking about the whole time, the grace by which we're saved as Christians, the grace in which we stand and in which we live and serve, this grace that enables us to know his peace and love within the body of Christ. This grace is only for those who love the Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. The word for incorruptible suggests that that which is not subject to decay or decline. You can say it another way, and in some passages, some translations, it says, who love the Lord Jesus with undying love. In other words, those who truly know the Lord Jesus have a love that is undying. It's not temporary. It does not ebb and flow with their emotions or with their feelings. Sometimes I feel like going to church. Sometimes I feel like living for the glory of God. Sometimes I feel like gathering with God's people, and sometimes I don't. No. Those who are recipients of his grace, those for whom Paul prays for grace, are those who love the Lord Jesus with an undying love, a committed kind of love. Again, that's a part of what it means to be a Christian. In summary, we together in community confess that we have been given new life by the grace of God. We together in community confess our need for the grace of God to live life for the glory of God. We together in community have an undying love for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. An undying love which motivates us to an undying allegiance to him and obedience to him. For Jesus alone gave himself up for us on the cross according to the will of God so that we might by the grace of God live for his glory. Christians are those who stand in need of God's grace. We need the grace of God to accomplish the purposes of God. We need the grace of God experienced through the people of God. We need the grace of God to walk in the peace of God. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ pour out his peace, love, and grace upon us so that we, as the Catonsville Baptist Church, might live for his glory, might express our undying love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our commitment to one another in the body of Christ to pursue his purposes. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your grace, your great grace, which has been operative in giving us new life. Your grace, which is operative in sustaining us as your people. Your grace, which is operative in equipping us to serve one another and to love one another and to be committed both to one another and to the Lord Jesus. Your amazing grace, which is our hope in life and death. Your amazing grace, which reminds us that we belong to you forever. As we consider your amazing grace, as we live and walk in your amazing grace, we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.